0: this is sarah czar and you are listening to this creative life a podcast on which i a writer talk to other writers about our work and process and adjacent topics the podcast lives at this where you can find full show notes and sign up to get the podcast in your email if you like or just get it through your podcast apps and keep your inbox nice and tidy Uh, My guest today is Tracy Batiste. She is the author of the middle grade series, The Jumbies, and many other books, including a YA novel, numerous works of nonfiction, including a bunch of biographies, and the New York Times bestselling Minecraft, The Crash. Tracy is also my former colleague at Lesley University, creative writing um, in the MFA, the low residency MFA program. And when I say former, I mean, I'm former. (laughs) She still works there. I'm in a different place now, Um, but I'm so happy to have her on the podcast. Welcome,
1: Tracy. Hi, Sarah. Thanks so much for having me.
0: It is March 16th, 2021. Um, How are you
1: doing? Good. Um, Like, surprisingly good, given that it's been a year that I've been stuck in my house with my children. Nobody's dead. We're all alive. You know, we're all... um, Still getting along, which is um, which is remarkable, actually. How old are your kids now? Uh, so I have an 18-year-old and a 14-year-old. So I have a freshman in college and a freshman in high school. And you're all getting along. That's I know great. it's uh, it's astonishing. <laughs> I do not know how this is happening. And on the days that my husband is working from home, uh, you know he. we're it's all four of us and it still seems to be okay
0: (laughs) okay i just kind of since we're talking about leslie i just want to start there as an entry point you have worked at the leslie low residency mfa program for a while but it's not your first time at the teaching rodeo um you taught elementary school for a while? I sure
1: did, yeah. So th- this was my uh, first job out of uh, out of college, is teaching elementary school. I was a pre K teacher for a little bit, and then I taught fifth, sixth grade for a little bit. But most of my time was teaching second grade, and honestly it is not that different from teaching an MFA program. <laughs> Ooh, shots fired, out. <laughs> yeah, but honestly, you know, I make that joke all the time, but it really is true that a lot of the management, the sort of student management that I need to do with my students is stuff that I learned when I was teaching second grade.
0: That makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's about working with people. Right. I mean, it's just like little tiny people and people that are more grown up, but
1: still act like all... little tiny people. <laughs> <laughs> it's all people. People. Yeah. I mean, the thing um, is like he... students need students can be really needy and it really doesn't matter their age. Um, you know, they're needy at different levels of, of neediness. Um and yeah, yeah, and there's something about that
0: age where, you know, not every MFA student is in their 20s, but many right. are. And uh, 20s are hard. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 20s are super hard. That was one of the hardest times in my own life for sure. And I just feel that when I'm working with the 20-somethings. Um, especially early 20s or mid 20s. Right. Yeah. You just feel it just brought it all back like, oh man, this is just a hard time of life figuring out what am I doing? How am I doing it? Why am I doing it? <laughs>
1: who am I? Who am I? That's, how do I that's separate myself from
0: my parents? Yeah. yeah. I really
1: feel like that's the thing that is the similarity between um, little kids and people who are now. Trying to find their path in uh, a writing career is who am I? Like, what do I want to say? You know, Mm -hmm. and it's not dissimilar from seven and eight year olds who are just figuring out that they are people outside of their caregivers. Um, you know right. who am i what do i really like you know what are the what are the books that i like like i can choose now like nobody's choosing my books for me that sort of thing mm-hmm. and it's not i can develop my own sense of I can exactly yes yeah. yeah. you know yeah. i can say what i want to do with my time um it's not really that different from people who are embarking on a um creative journey and trying to figure out who they are as writers and what they want to say and what they can say, because they don't know yet, really. Yeah, that's a good point.
0: Um, I saw on your bio, too, that you worked in educational publishing for a while between your classroom teaching years and and your writing on a more full-time basis. Yeah, let me apologize Um, for that
1: right now. (laughs) Let me apologize for all of the um, curriculum and tests that I wrote. I'm sorry. I'm, I think you've probably
0: made up okay. for it right. in the last, in, in your current career. Uh, but what was that transition out of, like, classroom teaching into educational publishing and then out of that setting into writing? Did it all feel to you like this is all just a continuum of the same work expressed in different ways? Or did writing feel really different for you?
1: Um, It was, it was. It very much feels of a piece. Like I have always felt like a teacher and I have always felt like a writer. And I I don't feel that those are really very separate things. I was a very creative person as a teacher. I often went off of the sort of established curriculum um, to do more creative things with my students that were related to what we were doing in the classroom and what we were supposed to be doing based on the books that we had, that we were given. Um, and so when I decided that teaching did not offer me the kind of creativity that I really wanted to have in my working life, that's when I moved to McGraw-Hill and I started working on curriculum there, hoping that I would be able to bring my creativity to what was happening in those kinds of textbooks and I and I was but it was still kind of really restrictive Um, so then I moved from there and I started working at a publishing company this was Rosen Publishing and they were there known for doing a lot of library binding kinds of books. So I was writing those kinds of books, and I was also editing those kinds of books. And then eventually I just transitioned to writing full time. But it all felt like a natural progression for me, at least, because I was always trying to be this creative person in the things that I was doing. Storytelling was also a really big part of my teaching life and um it doesn't you know it, it still doesn't feel that different and even now when i go and i do school visits i use all of my teacher skills in those school visits to i bet you're so good at school i love visits. school visits so much i cannot express to you um you know we were talking a little bit earlier before we started recording but um about you know like doing them in person versus um online and i really like doing them online. And one of the nice things is being able to share a screen, being able for kids to like see my environment. But mm-hmm. I don't feel any less connected to them and I really, really do enjoy that. I, I like the spontaneity of um of kids live and when they have kooky questions, like I love that. That's like my favorite because it mm-hmm. really is very much like being in the classroom where sometimes you don't know what's gonna happen during the day. So you have to be on, you have to be quick-witted, you have to really pay attention, and you also, in all of that, still have to be sensitive and make sure that you are being appropriate and uh, responding appropriately Mm -hmm. to what a kid is asking, especially if there's like a question behind the question, you know those, Mm -hmm. where they're asking something but that's not really what they're asking, you gotta figure that Mm -hmm. out like on the fly. I love that.
0: Um, I have never done visits with such young groups. Not on purpose. There's been a few um, mistakes made (laughs) (laughs) on visit bookings where somehow the school or person or bookstore or whatever didn't understand what I do. And I would get there and it'd be like like second grader sitting cross-legged on the floor. (laughs) And like... Let me tell you about this book, about a high school romance. Um, <laughs> but I just imagine that's a really fun, fun group to talk to. And I am i just finished my first middle grade, so maybe oh, I'll get
1: excellent.
0: to have more contact with that age. I will tell you that second really graders
1: fun. are the absolute best. This is why I spent most of my teaching life in second grade. Second graders are the greatest.
0: I remember when I was that age, I felt like I was pretty awesome. So. <laughs> I can imagine that. So what was the tale of Does um, the publication of your very first novel, which was a YA novel called Angel's Grace? Um, were you still working in in publishing or teaching at the time when you were working on that was, book? I was,
1: yeah. So I was working at McGraw-Hill then, so I had stopped teaching – Um, And the reason I had stopped teaching when I stopped teaching was uh, just after my husband and I got married, we moved to New Jersey and it was, we weren't planning to move, it just we had this opportunity to to be able to move. It was two weeks after the wedding. It was extremely chaotic and um, being in New Jersey and teaching in Brooklyn was just not a commute that I was willing to make. Yeah. So I would, I mean, I know that I would have stopped teaching anyway, but it seemed like, okay, this is just the moment to to do it. And so I started working at McGraw Hill and I did still have a commute into the city from from New Jersey. Uh, I would be on the New Jersey transit bus, you know, going back and forth. And Mm -hmm. that's actually where I wrote, Angel's grace. I was, I had my laptop on my lap while I was on the bus going in and I worked on it on the commute in and on the commute back home. And that was, that was it. That's how I did it.
0: That always amazes me when people are able to do that. For one thing, I get sick to my stomach if I look at anything but out the window (laughs) when I'm in a vehicle, but also just the tiredness at the end of a day of work or at the in the morning, you know, having a lot on your mind about the day to come. Did you find it challenging to do that? Where you are just like, I have to do this because this is the only way I'm gonna get to write my book or was it like pretty easy?
1: It was fairly easy in the morning to do it because it was fresh and I always left a lot earlier. So I would get in at eight o'clock in the morning. So it was really, really early. Um, the bus was usually not that packed. I would always get a seat Um, You know, you're getting on at like 7 o'clock in the morning or whatever it is, and it was quiet, not a lot of people on, so it was really easy to do it in the morning. In the afternoon, it was a lot more difficult, because then you're tired, you have your whole day, you're thinking about, okay, I'm going to go home, and what are the things that I need to do? Um, Mm -hmm. You know, so it was a lot harder in the afternoons to do it. Um, So there were a lot of afternoons I just didn't, I just didn't even bother to take the laptop out of my bag. I was just like, I'm going to nap. That's what I'm going to do. Um, But, you know, it also was because I didn't have any pressure on me. I had, I had an agent already, but I had never sold a book yet and I didn't know what, This was going to be. So for me, there was no pressure on this book. It was just like me trying to figure out if I could do this thing. So it made it a lot easier, I think, to just get to the end of it and then start over and start um, editing it on my own and, you know, trying to clean it up.
0: I was just talking yesterday to a writer friend saying how there was this advice that I used to hear when I was kind of in that stage of I'm writing and like I had my first agent, nothing was published. uh, and people I knew who were published authors would say, enjoy this time because writing will never be the same again. So just like enjoy like that feeling of you're writing without that pressure and it's all coming from like this deep place within you and you're not, your head's not full of voices, other voices that come in later. And of course, I I don't know how you were, but like at that stage, I didn't want to hear that. I mean, I was just like, no, uh, I'm not enjoying this time. Easy for you to say, published author. Uh, I won't be happy until I'm published. But now like I still think like, yep, yep. Should have (laughs) listened.
1: Yeah. It's, it's funny how, you know, In hindsight, you know, everything, you know, feels so different. Like that time definitely feels different than it does now because, uh, you know, I suspect that you probably also, like me, have deadlines. Like you probably sell books on a proposal maybe and then then you have to write this book. (laughs) You know, Mm -hmm. it's like, wait. Um, did I think this all the way through before I sold this book? So, you know, there are. It's like are- you sold the book at
0: um, t- 10 in the morning one Thursday when you were like on your second cup of coffee and you were like in an estrogen surge <laughs> and you were like, I can write this book. Yep. And then like when you're writing it, you're like, oh, my God, what have I exactly. done? Exactly. You're
1: like, what book is this? <laughs> who Who thought of this concept? Like, what? Oh, me, me, I thought of it. Oh, dear. Okay, now, now I have to do it. Yeah, I do. You know, it's, I I tried to recreate that sense of no pressure for myself last year, at the end of last year. um, Because I, you know, I I did have a lot of things under contract and, and whatnot. But, I carved out a three month space for myself Mm. and I said, you know, I'm gonna write this book. It's not on a contract. Nobody has any idea what it is. Nobody's asking me for anything right now. I'm just going to write this book that, I don't know if it's a book, (laughs) I don't know if it's good, I don't know if it's anything, but I'm gonna take these three months and I'm just gonna work on this thing. All the way through until it's finished, polish it up, and then I will start working on other things that I have contracted. Um That's my
0: dream, Tracy. Yeah. How did it go? It went
1: spectacularly. So oh, man. This was a book that I had conceived of right after I had finished the first Jumbies book. So Elise Howard, my editor, was looking for a second book because we weren't at the time going to do a series at all and so i wrote her a proposal for this sort of futuristic post-apocalyptic reverse snow white and it was just it was good in concept but it was messy because i i really couldn't figure it out yet And so I just put it, she, she of course, said no. (laughs) and um, (laughs) uh, Smartly said no. And so I just put it away for a long time. And it had just been sitting there for like five years. And then last summer I I pulled out a notebook and I just started longhand writing notes just to see like, oh, what is this gonna be? Let me tool around with this idea. Let me tool around with this uh, character. Um, Let me see what this person might say, how might this go, Mm. that sort of thing. And then I had almost a full notebook by the end of the summer, I put it away again, I I had some other things that I was doing, um, August, September. And October 1st, I started, I was just like, okay, I'm going to write this entire thing this month. And every day I sat at my desk and I wrote about 2,000 words of this book. So by the end, of actually October 25th, I was finished with the entire thing. I put it away, mm-hmm. um, for the whole of November, most of December. Uh, I started reading it in December, longhand editing it. Um, cause I like to do that, print it out and, and read it through longhand and, and write notes on it. And then late January, I started retyping it from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, and then, yeah, I sent it to my agent maybe a week, a week and a half ago or so. And she's like, this is amazing. I'm like, okay, so here we go.
0: I am so glad we're having this conversation because this is exactly like something I know that I need to do and I've needed to do for a long time. And hearing you describe how you did it, kind of a month here, a month there, you know, and then like attending to other things in between. Right. It feels more possible. And this is actually a great transition to my next question, which was more generally about process, which is um, one of the things, the day that I emailed you to be on the podcast, I had been looking at your Instagram. And I just, I'm one of those people who can't get enough of process (laughs) stuff, methods, tools, just everything. I just love it. Um, And so you, you had some posts that were just like, hitting pushing my every good button Mm -hmm. (laughs) like every time like here's Tracy in front of a whiteboard with post-its on it oh my uh you know oh here's a picture of her typing it was a video of you typing the notes from your handwritten notebook into your computer um you've got yeah you're sitting in a chair with a cup of coffee making handwritten like I'm a sucker for all of that and um so The process that you just did for this book where you're like, I'm going to write a whole book and then send it to my agent. Is that more or less the process that you usually do if you're selling under proposal where you do you write a first draft by longhand usually or do you usually do it on the computer? Just that kind of stuff. Take us through. Walk (laughs) us through the Tracy Batiste method.
1: (laughs) Well, you know, the funny thing is I feel like with every book – It's kind of different, um, and it sort of depends on what the circumstances are, um, as far as my time is concerned, um, and also how much of the story I feel like is sort of inside me, and how much of it I still need to discover. So Mm. with, um, I always tell the story about the third Jumbies book because... Um, it actually started, you mentioned that the whiteboard with the sticky notes on it, and that mm-hmm. actually started with the third Jumpy's book. I had never done this before. Uh, we, had, we had sold the first two books. Uh, again, it was never supposed to be a series, but the first one did so well that Elise Howard asked if I would do a second book, and my agent at the time asked whether or not she wanted it to be a three book deal. She's like, no, no, we'll just do two books and, and, you know, we'll do a duology. And I said, okay, fine, no problem. So I put everything into that second book. I had left possibilities open after the first one. And mm-hmm. so for the second one, I put everything. Cause I was just like, okay, she didn't want a third book. So I'm dumping everything in this, <laughs> into this thing. The book had not come out yet. She called me in Trinidad. I was in Trinidad with the kids. Um, so she called me from New York. Uh, in Trinidad and said, hey, a lot of people seem to um, be thinking that this is going to be a three book series. And I don't like the word duology.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I don't either. I mean, frankly, (laughs)
1: Um, you know, so let's let's do a third book. And I was literally like on my way to go have lunch with my aunt and uncle in like the south of Trinidad. And I'm like, I have no ideas for this book because, <laughs> like, I put everything in you the second book. gave it all, book. yeah. Like, I, you know. So, of course, you know, we sit there. We're having dinner. My kids are making fun of me, as they do, and telling me that it has to be Jumbies in Space because all all series have to end in space <laughs> and, and at a gift shop. And, <laughs> you know, my mom is giving me, like, terrible ideas. Terrible. It's <laughs> just so bad. And my aunt and uncle just shoveling food down my gullet, you know, cause you know, everybody in Trinidad internet just thinks everybody's too skinny. So, um, <laughs> you, know, you know how it is. And I'm like distraught cause I'm like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And I came back, we came back to New York, to New Jersey. It was, um, you know, school was starting, it was, um, Hurricane Maria was starting to like rip through Mm, the Caribbean. mm -hmm. So we got out like just before that happened and, uh, fortunately Trinidad was okay, but it was really still difficult to watch other Caribbean islands, um, you know, go through all of that. Cause I, I do have siblings and cousins in, in, in other islands and it's, you know, that's Mm -hmm. rough. And I was watching the weather channels, like glued to the weather channel watching and um, in between some of the reports, they had put up this thing on the screen that said, Huracan is the Carib god of storms. And I was like, wait a minute, I know that, because mm-hmm. the Caribs are the indigenous people in throughout the Caribbean, really. But, you know, I grew up with the Caribs and the, you know, so-called Arawaks. Um, that's what the Spanish called them, but they were all one tribe, mm-hmm. really. <laughs> Not two mm-hmm. tribes. Um, and I knew about... Um, Huracan and Carib gods and stuff like that. So I wrote it on a sticky note. Just that. Huracan is Mm -hmm. the Carib god of storms. And I stuck it on my wall. And I was working on the Minecraft book at the time, and I was also working on a graphic novel about Rosa Parks and Claudette Colvin at the time. Mm. And so I was just, you know, going into my office every day and I would work on one book or the other. And the sticky note was just sort of sticking, you know, sitting there on my wall and every now and then I would get like another idea and I'd write it on another sticky note and I'd just put it on the wall. And eventually I had all of these sticky notes all over the wall. That was what this story was going to become. And it was, so this was, you know, this started somewhere in August, somewhere around December. I remember standing in front of the wall and looking at the collection of sticky notes and the entire story downloaded into my brain in like one Ugh. fell swoop i was like that's the story." magical it but it was months and months and months of me right like it's a like your subconscious idea. is like exactly. stewing it on it exactly yeah exactly what it is so yeah i i always talk about this idea of sort of gaming your subconscious to do this work for you. Like you are doing other Mm. things, but your subconscious really wants you to have the things that you want to have, right? So you put these things in front of it as, you know, I want this. And your subconscious is like, I will get you that, I will, I will, I will figure it out. And your subconscious is like busily working while you're doing other stuff, while you're napping, while you're making lunch, while you're, you know, working Mm -hmm. on other books. And so yeah, I just had this amazing experience where the entire thing came to me and I emailed my, um, my agent and my editor and I said, I will send you guys an outline for this book in January. And, um, you know, I need to get through Christmas because Christmas is like my season, like nothing gets (laughs) between me and Santa Claus. Like it's not even (laughs) a joke. Like nobody can talk to me around Christmas time about anything (laughs) besides Christmas. So um, I feel like everybody knows. (laughs) Um, So, you know, after Christmas was when I sat down. And I wrote the entire outline for the book. And I don't remember how long it took me to do it. it I don't think it was really that long, maybe just a, a couple of days or so. And I sent it to to my agent who then sent it to Elise Howard and she made an offer on that book, like in two hours. Like we got a call back in two hours. She's like, Here's your cash, write this book. I was like, <laughs> Okay. Here we go.
0: Yes. Everything you're describing makes me so excited to (laughs) start writing again because I've been on a – I just turned in a book like – I don't know if it's two weeks ago now or three weeks ago, but so I'm in like this little Mm in-between and trying to figure out how and what to do next. And I think that's one thing I love about hearing about process is just it makes me excited to write It's just, it's like the reason I would go to writing conferences before I was published. At a certain point, I had been to enough where I was like, I know I'm not going to hear like (laughs) some like, this is the key (laughs) to becoming, breaking through and becoming a better writer or making book writing easy or whatever. I knew I wasn't going to hear anything like that. But just listening to writers talk about how they do what they do. Just made me excited about the whole thing. It wasn't like, oh, I'm gonna use their process. It was right. just, yeah, this is this is why I got into this. Not all the like publishing industry stuff. <laughs> I got into this because I just love the whole. I love everything about it, from typing on a keyboard to writing in a notebook to thinking about stories and like doing writing dialogue and just having scenes come to you. Like I just love it and it makes me excited and it takes effort as you get older. Just as I think as you get older as a human right. but also as you get older in the business, like it takes effort to feel excited about yeah. things sometimes. Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean this was this was a particularly amazing thing that happened. This this um you know uh having this this thing happen was unexpected it was not something that i certainly planned for it just Mm -hmm. you know was just something that i was just like oh here's an idea here's an idea here's an idea let me just do it this way um and it worked out but i have since continued to use that method to write books like if there is something where I don't know that I really have enough of the story in me yet. I go back to the sticky notes. And so you mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that I have this whiteboard. And so it's a think board. And the nice thing about the think board is that it has a QR code at the bottom. So you can take a photograph with your phone of the think board and it uploads into um, the whatever the app is. And so you have exactly what is on that think board forever. So if you ever need to, My God, I'm going to have to buy another gadget. <laughs> <laughs> They're really handy. Um, You know, I don't always do it like because I feel like sometimes I have enough um, where I, I don't feel like I need to keep it. But the, right. the point is that you know, if I needed to work on something else and I needed to have the think board, I could take a snapshot of what's on there right now and um, I still have it permanently that I can go back and look at while I use it for something else. Um, you know, it just kind of depends on your space. Mm-hmm. You could, of course, have multiple think boards <laughs> up on your walls, depending on how much you know space you have.
0: But, and I think they make notebooks. They do. That- do a similar yep. thing. Like there's a lot of ways you can yeah, the
1: use that
0: combination mm-hmm. of like old school writing things down plus technology yeah. Yeah. for so, not losing so things. Yeah, so
1: Rocket Book, <laughs> my daughter actually uses this for her classes. She has one notebook that she has been using for the last I know I think since junior year of high school she's been using and wow. now she's in college she's in her freshman year of college where she uses a rocket book and she writes all of her notes in the rocket book and then she uploads all of her notes and then she erases the book and starts over from scratch again so all of her notes are in this and then she can you know sort them out for different classes or you know whatever it is that she's doing and she just uses that one thing and her whole thing is that she wants to reduce her carbon footprint, right? So yeah, that's, yeah. and she likes doing, you know, handwritten notes. And so this was her way, um, her solution to being able to do um, handwritten notes and reducing her carbon footprint at the same time. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah.
0: Um, I, you, another thing I noticed in your Instagram posts is that there would be days where you would be like, you know, uh, I wrote like 2000 words, but I was rereading it and like it's just not working so I'm deleting that (laughs) (laughs) and I'm like "Ah," like just vicarious stress (laughs) because it's just hard to take a whole day's worth of writing and just be like this is not what needs to happen right now in this book or like this is not good or I was just like I just did this to like meet my word count right how do you decide like what When you look at work, what's salvageable and what you're just going to have to toss?
1: I think it's it's something that you can kind of feel, right? You can kind of feel it. Like in, in, the, a, in your in gut. This, yeah, in in the story. And I, I know that every writer I've ever talked to has had this experience where um, they've written something. They know it's not good, right? <laughs> but, they, but they leave it in there. <laughs> They're like, nobody's going to notice this thing that I've done. Um, I'm just going to leave it in there and I'm going to see if I can get away with it. And they never do, like you never get away with it because people can That's see true. it coming. And and if you have, you know, a critique group or you have a friend who's a beta reader or your editor or your agent or somebody's going to be like, hey, this thing doesn't quite, you know, and you're like, God damn it. <laughs> Literally the <laughs> thing that I was trying to hide the whole time. Um uh, you always know, the th- uh, and I think you really need to be good about listening to yourself and listening to those doubts that crop up as you are working. The way that I... It's hard, d- though, but okay, mm-hmm. go yeah, ahead. Well, the way that explain I did it this time... My,
0: I mean, I'm going to offer my rebuttal. <laughs> <Your> rebuttal.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, the way that I did it this time was that before I did those 2,000 words... I would go to the notebook and I would look through like whatever it was that I was going to be trying to do that day. And I would write a little note to myself. Okay, this is what I'm trying to do today. I'm trying to establish um, Cole as a character. I'm trying to um, show that he is somebody who is hurt but has humor or whatever it is. Like, you know, like that's the thing that I'm trying Mm -hmm. to get at. And then after I finished, I would write myself another note to say whether or not I feel like I've really accomplished that, or if there were other things that happened, things that were surprising, maybe that happened. I remember there were a couple of times when I was just like, "Oh, I did not expect the, you know, like the the foster dad to to say something like that and be so funny or whatever." Um, and so then then I would write those kinds of notes, and then you know, like when I go back and I read the pages and I look at my notes to myself, that's that's kind of when I realize, oh, you know what I was trying to do, I didn't really do. Is there a way for me to do this better? You know what, maybe just start it from, from scratch at this point, just cut it out, start over, get this thing to happen, get it to feel more like where I want it to be and then move on from there rather than getting all the way to the end on the wrong trajectory because I've done that too. And that's no fun. Yeah, (laughs) that's no fun. You know, I my struggle is when I'm deep
0: in a in a book, and I have that sense of I've lost perspective, and I don't trust my gut. And so sometimes those feelings where I'm like, I don't think this scene is good, but I'm gonna leave it and see if my editor says anything. But but then usually my gut is correct. You know, like you said, you just the editor comes back and is like, I don't know about this scene. You're yep. like, hmm, funny. Like, that's the one I was thinking about <laughs> cutting. So, like, I, I get those confirmations. But when I'm in the moment, I there's always a time when I lose touch with my intuition and start getting scared and just being like, am I deleting good work and keeping bad work? Am I deleting bad work and keeping good work? I don't even know what's happening mm-hmm, anymore. Mm-hmm. And I need that other perspective um, but I think thinking about the intention of a scene is a really smart way to to evaluate it.
1: This, this was also a new method that I just developed for this past book. Like, that was never something that I had done before. So for me, like, I always feel like I'm always refining process, which is why, like, when, <laughs> when you were asking me about process before we started recording, and I started <laughs> laughing, it's because, like, my process is literally always changing. Like, I am always trying to meet this particular book with process yes it it always feels like i am not so much reinventing the wheel but i'm always tweaking it for this book needs this and so this is what i'm gonna have to do for this book with this book um and another book may not need that may need something else entirely so i'm always trying to think of what is the right approach but again um it's, it's the teacher me, right? It's the teacher yeah, me trying yeah. to meet whatever it is that is required of this particular moment.
0: Right, Pro- the problem-solving yeah. of, of the situation. Exactly,
1: yeah, so it's I feel like it's always different. Um, I don't think that I could really nail down process for myself ever because the book that I'm working on right now, which is um, uh, the book for the Rick Riordan Presents um, series, I'm not doing any of that longhand because mm-hmm. I know that frankly I don't have time to to, yeah. to do the longhand yeah. notes first. <laughs> so I did the sticky note bit, but I'm going straight to the computer um to to write it rather than, you know, going doing the longhand thing, sort of doing my whole discovery thing and um and then digging into it. But I also have more of the story inside of me already. Like I know the trajectory mm-hmm. of the story already. Um, it's just a matter of getting it down on paper.
0: I think all that stuff is so crucial to for for writers starting out or who are, st- who are still developing um, to hear because, like I said, when you're like a young writer or a beginning writer and you're going to conferences, I think in the beginning you do start feeling like, I got to go to this talk and I'm going to get the answer and then I'm never going to have trouble writing a book again. <laughs> and and just that reinforcement of like no it's it's can be different every time your process is your process it might be messy you might not even be able to really describe it um but you can change it you can adjust it different books require different things and i think that's all just a good reminder that writing is not you know, it's not like cooking. No,
1: it is not. It's like not like cooking. put these
0: ingredients in it with these measurements,
1: yeah. and it's it's not predictable. Come out. Like you would think that after a while, um, the way that you do things become sort of predictable. That there's a sort of a cyclical nature to what happens. But I don't. Th- there are some things that I that always happen that I, I and I know that. But as far as how to get inside of a story. I feel like that is always a matter of well this is a different kind of story and so this requires me to come at it this way and this is how I need to think about it and so I need to use you know this part of my brain and that requires mm-hmm. a different um method of you know taking notes or um Uh, collecting ideas or or whatever it is. And I feel like that stuff is always a little bit different. Um, The thing that always happens, though, is that I start writing and at some point I decide that this is the absolute worst thing I've ever done in my life. That that always happens. (laughs) That tracks. (laughs) It's like, why am I doing this? Maybe I should be like, maybe I should go to like plumbing school (laughs) and be a plumber. (laughs) Like, you know, at least then, like, you know, you know what will happen, right, with plumbing? Yeah, yeah. like, But that always happens in every single project. I get to the point where I'm just like, oh, my God, this is awful. Mm-hmm. Um, And then, you know, because I know that I always get to that point, I, I always just have to push past it. And sometimes I have to push past it, yeah. like, several times, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. But you do learn from experience.
0: You're like, I felt this way with X book and it turned out right. great. So, yeah. Um, well, that's a good sort of transition to, you have a ton of great video content also at YouTube. You have a, or you, I don't know if you're still doing it, but you did a series called Creativity Under Pressure. Yeah. Um, talk about that series a little bit. So uh,
1: I, at Leslie, I teach a class called Creativity Under Pressure, and when the pandemic started, I was getting a lot of. Uh, well, first of all, I, I reached out to my students at Leslie, the current students, um, past people, uh, alumni, sort of, um, so on, just to check in with them, see how they were doing, um, just give them a chance to like say hello to each other and kind of like relieve some stress, right? Yeah. And they were all complaining about how difficult it had been for them to be creative in this time because it was just so stressful. And so I decided that I would take my usual workshop that I do um, about creativity under pressure, which is for, our, is for our third semester students, is for them to start thinking about what their creative life is going to look like after they've right. left the program because that, that transition when they fly the exactly (laughs) they're like, oh wait, I don't have deadlines anymore. Like nobody's, (laughs) nobody's asking me for anything. Mm -hmm. Like how do, how am I going to do this? Um, so, you know, so, so it's, uh, you know, it's like a good point for them to start thinking about this kind of transition. And I decided that I would just do like short clips of the kinds of things that I do in the class with them, which is Mm -hmm. like, looking at your environment like what is the environment that works for you it's not going to be the same environment for everybody you know like some people need to work in a cafe some people need to you know be cocoon and be in the same space all the time some people need to be outside whatever it is and so i just went through a few of the things that we talk through in class where i was just talking through it um at the computer screen really Mm -hmm. um, for anybody to look at. And I did those, like I just would turn on the screen and I would just talk and then I would just turn it off. And literally anything that happened in between whether or not Barkley came in and started, you know, being rowdy or whatever, (laughs) or there was a siren going off in the distance. Like it didn't really matter because, you know, I was just doing these as a way to um, help people who were creative and who were struggling. But it also was kind of to help myself. It was to remind yeah. myself that, yeah. oh, right, I can't actually do this, I know. <laughs> um, you know.
0: And that's why I restarted this podcast during the pandemic because it actually ended in, it, it ran 2012 to 2015.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I didn't think I was gonna do it again. And then I was like, I need something. <laughs> I need to, like, get in touch with this part of myself. Right, exactly. Um, yeah, this morning I was watching the episode 9 mm-hmm. um, of your podcast, uh, podcast, your YouTube series while I was having my breakfast, and, and that was something you had recorded and posted um, back in June 2020, kind of at the height of everything getting extra, extra terrible. Right. Especially, as you say in the video, for black and brown people and especially for black and brown women. And you said, this is not just a pressure-filled time. This is an extraordinarily crushing time to try to do anything creative. And you were, you know, really talking specifically to black and brown creators who have been under this crushing weight of all of the burdens and the losses, the losses, um, all of that that has been created by racism and white supremacy. And you talked about taking a step back and that you were you needed to take a step back and um i'm just wondering how that went where you are now 9 months later with nurturing a practice in the midst of you know we're still we're i think we're kind of at the beginning of the end of the pandemic part uh. <laughs> but like the racism part is it feels like there's no end right. <laughs> um just yeah how where are you now and, and what did you do during that time to help yourself?
1: Well, um, the first thing was noticing that I needed to step back, that I, noticing that I needed to take a break. Um, and, and that's something that I think a lot of people, especially women, uh, have a difficult time with because we mm-hmm. are, we sort of pray at the altar of grind mm-hmm. culture. Uh, particularly in, hustling, yes, in, yeah. in this country, um, you, growing up in Trinidad, we didn't really have that. Like five o'clock, like literally everything shuts down in Trinidad. Mm-hmm. Like if you want to do something and it's you know uh, four fifty p.m., look, it's, it's just not gonna happen. It's gonna happen tomorrow because <laughs> this place is closing at five o'clock and it's not opening until eight o'clock in the morning um so you know in other parts of the world like people really do understand taking breaks taking time family time mm-hmm. um and in the united states really people do grind a lot and it's yeah. worshiped like when somebody's like oh my yes. god i've been working so hard i'm exhausted this is something that we kind of praise in our yes, culture yes. and it's awful <laughs> it's really mm-hmm. terrible But I had started to notice um, that this was hard for me, that this was increasing my anxiety, that I was increasingly depressed and increasingly needing um, to stop. And like doing anything at all was, Ten times harder than it was, and it was because mm-hmm. of exhaustion and anxiety and depression, and with everything that was happening with the pandemic, with um, the Breonna Taylor shooting, where you know, mm-hmm. still at the point of George Floyd's murder, still nothing had happened at that point. All of the protests were happening. We were heading towards a um, uh, another presidential election. And that felt huge and crushing, mm. and I realized mm. that I was going to absolutely shut down if I did not step back, or or really, not just shut down, but like I might actually hurt myself if I mm-hmm. did not stop and try to figure out how to center myself, how to be quiet, how to um, find the things that really mattered to me, how to Uh, find some time to rest, to actually rest. Um, And so I reached out to a few author friends of mine, uh, Ola Bamisola, Rude Perkovich, and Renee Watson, and Danielle Clayton. And I got on the phone with them, all three of them at the same time. And I was like, I can't do anything. I don't know how to function. Like, I literally don't know what to do or how I can do anything right now. And they said, are you able to make a list of the people who you are working with on various things right now Um, and their emails? And I said, yes, I can do that. And I gave that to them. And they, I don't know what they did, actually. (laughs) I think they wrote a letter, an email to my, my agent, um, Marietta Zacker. and um, I later that day, or po- possibly the next day, I got an email from Marietta, and it, basically it just said, um, I've reached out to all the people who need to be reached out to, everybody knows, to leave you alone. Um, everything will come through me uh, for the foreseeable future. <laughs> I was like, okay, yeah. um, great. And then I sat there, and that's really hard for me, and I suspect would be hard for a lot of people who are used to grinding every day. Mm -hmm. And I had to learn how to not do anything, which was just so much harder than I thought it would be. Like you think, great, I don't have anything to do. Nobody expects anything of me. I don't have to get up and write. I don't have to look at social media. I don't have to do it. I could literally just watch movies all day or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And it's so hard when you are a workaholic to just, rest and relax it's so freaking hard it took me like 2 weeks really of just forcing to myself start to, uh-huh. to start feeling like oh, okay all right i can i can really do this and um but that's what i had to do because it was it was really it was really bad and i mean i'm you know i i'm very upfront about my struggles with anxiety and depression and i've been in therapy and my therapist was like, "You know, this is the right thing to do. You made the right call, and yeah, you need to just sit down, Tracy. you know <laughs> you need to just mm-hmm. like not do anything." And I'm like, "How do people mm-hmm. do? That? I don't know how it happens. But you know, I got through the first two weeks, which are impossibly hard. and because it's like an addiction, like doing things and you know, like attending to things is is almost like an addiction. And I had to just, you know, stop like dead stop on that. Um, But after about two weeks, I started realizing that I was feeling a lot better. I was not as depressed. I was not as anxious. Things were not like immediately triggering me in a way that was Mm -hmm. difficult or dangerous or or anything like that. And so I took Uh, really about a month off but it was during this time that I started writing the notes for that book that I I wrote that I just wrote for myself yeah yeah because you know once I got past those first two weeks of doing absolutely nothing I was like oh you know there was that story and I sort of liked it and maybe I'll just scribble a few things here and there Mm -hmm. and it started really simply with just you know writing a little sentence or writing an idea down like really it was not a lot of writing at the beginning just like a couple of little things and it was nice to just have like nothing to think about and occasionally I would think oh what if Cole would do this on a particular day and you just write it down Mm -hmm. Cole you know rides his bike over to his best friend's house like that's lit like just that Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and after a while it was like, oh, I think I'm actually sort of getting into the story now. And it was as I started feeling better and feeling stronger in my head and in my heart that I was able to start doing more with the book. And that's when I decided, I was just like, okay, you know, when I have written down a whole bunch of notes, at some point, I'm just gonna write this entire book. And I'm just gonna write Mm -hmm. it for myself because nobody knows about it. Nobody's expecting it. I'm just doing it for me, just to see if this mm-hmm. would be a thing. And and but that's I, I think the two things got me out of that place where I was just so crushed. It was so debilitating to be there. But, you know, turning everything off. Like I wasn't on social media, I wasn't or not much at least. Um
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: um, I wasn't I really wasn't watching TV I was watching a lot of reruns of Star Trek which is I was
0: gonna say did you like just turn off the incoming news yes yeah,
1: for sure I, I, could not, yeah, yeah. I could not have yeah. that in in my life at all but I would watch uh, reruns of Star Trek so like deep yeah. space nine TNG <laughs> Voyager like that's really you know like where you know all the episodes already so you know it's like low anxiety because as soon as an episode mm-hmm. starts you know exactly what's going to happen in it and you can sort of evaluate is this an episode I really want to watch do I want to skip this one and so it's you know it's a very low anxiety kind of activity because you already know what's going to happen <laughs>
0: so it's yeah, great yeah so
1: I watched a lot of that and um you know, then eventually I got to this place where I was just like, okay, I feel better. I can start doing things again. I started adding back things to my schedule, but slowly. And Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't doing, it was the summer, so I wasn't doing any school visits or anything like that. And then eventually, um, you know, I had like the occasional email from people. Needing you know the various things that we need to do, can you look mm-hmm. at this copy? Can you do this or whatever it is? And like the occasional thing would come in and they would always be filtered through Marietta and Once I got to maybe around September or so was when I started like re engaging with people directly so it it took a little mm-hmm. while it it really it really took the entire summer to get to that place, and now i 'm still very wary of how my energy goes to things um, yeah I really pay attention now like if I get to the point where I'm ex- uh, like I'm, I've gotten to the point of exhaustion I just shut down I'm like what that's mm-hmm. th- uh, my day is over um mm-hmm. I am taking a nap nothing else is gonna happen today I've also cut down my work day to four days a week so one day a mm-hmm. week. And that's a floating day. It depends on what day it is. One day a week. I don't work at all um, of the five. I, I'm just like, mm-hmm. you know, weekends are like, you know how it is on the weekends. Like sometimes you work, sometimes you don't like whatever happens, mm-hmm. whatever happens. But for the most. Part, and it feels
0: like. Go ahead. I, I know when I do work on the weekends, it feels like I'm choosing. Yeah. Whereas on the weekdays, I feel like I'm, I'm supposed exactly. to. Exactly.
1: Right. So yeah. yeah, weekends are exactly like that for me. It's like, if I want to work on the weekend, I will work on the weekend. Um, when I was working on this particular book on um, um, coal or whatever we're going to call it um, at this point, I'm not even sure. <laughs> um, it doesn't really have a title. Um, I did work on the weekend because I wanted to work to, I wanted to write 2000 words a day. And so that Mm -hmm. would not have happened if I wasn't working on the weekend as well. But that, again, that was my choice to to do that. Um, But for the most part, I I try not to work on the weekend. I I shut down my emails um, starting around like 3 p.m. on a Friday. And Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter what comes in after that. I don't look at it until Monday morning. Um, Yeah.
0: I I try and do that too. With greater or lesser success, depending on what's going on. It's hard. But it's a good mental... There's a feature on um, Gmail. Oh, the snooze. Yeah. This, the pause, like the inbox yes. pause, where it's just like, it just shuts off the pipeline so that you're not tempted. You don't even look. Yeah,
1: that's good. I know. Uh,
0: and, and see that. Well, I'm really glad that you, well, first of all, that story of like reaching out to community and having that support right. is amazing. And it's very, I don't know how you are, but it's very hard for me to ever ask for oh, similar. I mean, I feel like if I
1: wasn't in therapy, I never would have been able to do that. Um, so yeah. I feel like, you know, working with the therapist that I have been working with for a while has gotten me to the point where, look, if I need to ask for help, I just need to freaking ask for help. My friends will help yeah. me. They will help me. They're yeah. happy to help me. And they were, they were just like, no problem. I mean, it was not, it was literally nothing. I, I called, they heard how distraught I was. They were like, what can we do? Can you make this list? They were like, great, you go lie down. That's it. You're done. And I was like, okay. And they handled it. I literally still have no idea what exactly they did.
0: (laughs) Um, whatever it was, I'm glad they did it. And you sound great. And, um, I know that we're now like two minutes past our scheduled time. I just want to ask you one last question, uh, just to roll us into the outro but um what's a a piece of culture that's or art that's helping you through everything right now whatever is like giving you joy right now you
1: know i have started reading a lot of poetry like i am not good at writing poetry but i love poetry i i love the music of it i love language and i've started following a lot of poets on um, various social media platforms and people who, who know poetry and understand poetry who are introducing me to things. So I have spent a lot of money in the last <laughs> year or so on poetry books that I'm just reading. And like, sometimes I understand them. And sometimes I do not
0: understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but, this is me and poetry <laughs> also.
1: But you know, I really love the way that poets think, the way that they wrap their minds around words and concepts. I love that, and um, even though I know that, you know, I I, I never hope to be able to to even attempt uh, writing a decent, I do write poetry for myself, that's terrible, Mm -hmm. which is fine, you know, but I would never, you know, foist my poetry on human eyeballs. Um, (laughs) but it's, it's one of those things that I find it's great because, you know, they're often, um, you know, short. I can often get through an entire book of poetry in one day. And that was a lot of what I did on quiet days when I was trying to like shut down and just not do anything is that I would just read books of poetry and, um, I'm hoping that maybe by osmosis or something, it's like there's some poetic quality <laughs> that I've absorbed over the last few months.
0: <laughs> I think you will. I mean, I don't. I think it's impossible. I don't know. I have a similar relationship to poetry where I'm just like, I don't know what is good poetry and what's bad poetry. I just know if I read it, it my brain works differently. And it's especially if I can – make myself stop trying to make a narrative out of Mm it. It just opens up access to different things happening in your brain, because that is that that's part of what's exhausting, I think, and what has been exhausting about the pandemic experience anyway is we're constantly trying to write a narrative about it in our minds to make it make sense. And it doesn't. And it's just like tiring. (laughs) And so poetry, I think allows, a break from that constant like I need this to make sense and have a beginning middle and end and and I need to be able to tell this story to myself when it's just like no let's just like bathe in language for yes
1: that is exactly what it is bathing in language that is a beautiful way to put it it's very poetic also by the way
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe I maybe I have a future yeah. as an award-winning poet I
1: know. <laughs> try that around
0: Tracy, thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experiences with us. It was great to catch up.
1: Yeah, thank you for having me. This was a lot of fun. Where can people find out more about you and your books? Uh my website is probably the best place, which is tracybatiste.com. I will put that link up in the show notes along
0: with links to other stuff we've talked about and um Thanks again, and thank you listeners and Substack subscribers. Thank you to Dave Connors for the theme music. Thanks for liking and sharing the podcast. Head on over to thiscreativelife.substack.com for more about the show and the complete show notes. Hang in there. We're almost through this. Don't give up now. Um, stay safe. I'm glad you're here.